Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Olivia Potoff, and I am the pastor of worship and care here at Journey Church. I'm just so grateful to be with you today um, as we are heading into a week of it's officially a holiday of gratitude, and I love that. I love Thanksgiving. I do want it to have its moment. If you are wondering where I land on the do we sing Christmas songs before Thanksgiving, I say no. It's all right. I am not a Scrooge. You can call me all the names, but I do want Thanksgiving to have its moment, and then we can play All I Want for Christmas is You over and over and over again. But today, we are ending our John series on September 19th, back in 2021, over a year ago, we started this series in the Gospel of John, the fourth gospel, and we get to finish it today. Other than taking a little break this past summer for Summer in the Psalms, we have spent almost every Sunday in the book of John. And so it's been about a year, and we've had five mini-series in this gospel which will be on the screen behind me. Maybe these will bring back some memories from over a year ago. We started with come and see, which then turned into come and believe. We also didn't think you wanted to look at the same graphic for over a year. <laughs> come and follow. And then things shifted to experience and enter in when we really get to the cross. And then we finally landed our so on go and tell and not keep it to ourselves. And today we find ourselves in the final verses and we wrap it up. This last chapter of John, it actually says in your Bible, it's called an epilogue, which if you like to read books or go to theater, you know that the epilogue in a play or in a book is the very last part. It's this little extra PS kind of that the author gives us. And it's the concluding part that usually tries to bring closure if they can. And I think it's really cool that John in John's epilogue, of all the things we could get as this PS to try to sum things up, we get Jesus making breakfast, which I love. I could have breakfast for every meal. I think in heaven there's going to be like, I don't know, like a section, you know, like an all-inclusive resorts where it's like you have like your Italian food and your Mexican food and your Asian food. I really think there's going to be a whole breakfast section in heaven. I'm hoping so because I could eat breakfast for every meal. And Jesus says to his disciples, come and have breakfast breakfast. There's a beautiful painting um, that I found. I tried for an hour to find the author of this painting because I really like giving people credit, especially artists of any kind, and I could not. So I wish their name was up there. But this is just such a beautiful picture. There's a little fire down here. We see Peter who can't even wait. It says, the scriptures say it was about 100 yards the boat was, and he can't even wait to get to Jesus, who says to his friends, come and have breakfast. You can leave that up there for a little bit, Coleman, thanks. Um, so that if you look at the night before this, which Pastor Scott preached on last week, the first 14 verses, Peter and his six other friends, six other disciples, there were seven, seven total, they have been up all night because this is the time period between resurrection and ascension. So Jesus was on earth for about 40 days before he went back to heaven, after he rose from the dead. This is probably, I'm guessing, around day 38 or 39. We're almost there. And Peter is probably feeling weird. He knows he, he's been paying attention. Jesus is not going to stay around for much longer. And so he does the one thing that he knows how to do well. So you know, it's like when we get in stressful modes, we're like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to go to my default. And for him, that's fishing. So he literally says, I'm going fishing in the middle of the night to catch all of these fish. And he and his six other friends catch nothing. 
And so as the sun is coming up, a man's on the shore, yells out to them, friends, have you caught any fish? And they say, no. He tells them to dump their nets on the right side of the boat. And then scripture tells us they caught 153. Somebody counted. (laughs) Fish. It says large fish, but the net doesn't break. There's a miracle in the miracle. And then John realizes it's the Lord. And then Peter jumps out of the boat. By the way, it says he leaves the other guys to haul all the 153 fish in. I just love Peter. He's truly my favorite disciple. And he just takes off for Jesus. I want to ask you a question as we start today. What smell are you most looking forward to? If you had been out all night fishing, you're super hungry, and you see Jesus and he says, come have breakfast or come have Thanksgiving dinner with me, what smell are you most looking forward to as we near the holidays? That reminds you of good cooking, good meals. Just go ahead and just yell it out. It's okay. You don't have to raise your hand. Fresh bread. Is that what someone said? Yes. What's that? Pie. Did someone say pie? Apple pie. pie. Jimmy, what'd you say? Fresh bread. bread. Yes. Pumpkin pie. Mashed potatoes. Anything else you really want to say? Carbs. All the carbs. (laughs) Josie, I love you. Oh, yes. All the carbs. Amen. The gluten-free people are like, sorry. Um, I know my husband cooks a turkey. It is, I'm not kidding you, a Martha Stewart turkey. It is unbelievable. Like it involves putting a glove on and putting all the herbs and butter and this garlic balm in between the skin and the turkey. It, I, don't, I don't know how I married him, but it is amazing. It is amazing. <laughs> and I'm just going to let him keep doing it. The olfactory system, which is our sense of smell, is extremely tied to memory. You've probably had this happen to you before where all of a sudden you, you smell something. Maybe it's like your grandma's old coat and she's now with the Lord, and you smell it, and you're like, I remember my grandma. Or for me, Dr. Pepper Chapstick, if I smell that, I, I'm not kidding you. I am in the seventh grade halls of my junior high, and I can hear like Shoop playing in the background. I mean, I can remember being in a very specific situation when I smell something. And that is because of how God made our bodies and our brains. It's incredible that we can smell something and be taken right back to a memory or a certain situation or person. And Peter and the, the, the disciples, as they get to the beach, as he's running back to Jesus, Scripture tells us that they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish and some bread and some carbs, a charcoal fire. There are only two places in the New Testament where the word charcoal fire, and you can picture like briquettes. To me, that smell reminds me of the 4th of July. There are only two places in the New Testament where we hear or see the word charcoal fire. One is at this breakfast scene, and the other one is when Peter is denying Jesus, when he's out in the courtyard standing by a charcoal fire, warming himself. And this is the scene, which I I look forward to them playing out in The Chosen, when, when Jesus is being questioned. He's been arrested. He's heading into the hardest day of his life, and Peter doesn't even acknowledge being associated with him. He lies that he even knows him three times, and then it says that Jesus, after he's been questioned, is walked out through the courtyard and that he and Peter make eye contact, the Bible tells us. And that was the last time that Peter smelled a charcoal fire. This same sea that they're on, the Sea of Galilee, is where Jesus first called Peter and his brother Andrew. Do you remember that way back at the beginning of John where he said, 
you, you guys, follow me. And that's when Peter stops being a fisherman and starts being a fisher of men, right? What Jesus tells him. This is also the same spot on the Sea of Galilee where Peter tried to walk on water but failed. All of these things, all of this significance and this smell and the familiarity, this is going to be where Peter has his last significant conversation with Jesus. And the Lord is going to show Peter that he can redeem anything, anyone, and that he can even redeem the smell of a charcoal fire. And so today, we find ourselves at the very end, and if you are able and willing to stand, we're going to read John 21. So go to the very, very end of John, and we're going to read the last few verses starting in 15, John 21, 15. It's called, Jesus Reinstates Peter. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. I'm also like, John, can you give them just a second? John is still there. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, when Peter saw John, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, you may have a seat. Here's another beautiful painting. I found another artist's rendition of what your Bibles often will title Jesus reinstates Peter or Jesus recommissions Peter. This beautiful scene. And if you count, there are six other friends in the boat hauling in the fish. And this beautiful scene where Jesus is embracing his friend. Today, as we look at these last few verses in John, I want to look at the four ways that I think Jesus in this passage is bringing reassurance to Peter. If you think about any, anyone in life who is either leaving, like in Jesus' situation, or dying, they want to make sure that they are good with their loved ones, and they want to make sure their loved ones are good with them. And so Jesus, even though he's given lots of assurance through his whole life, he's going to give massive reassurance to Peter 
in this passage today. And the first one is this, the assurance that Peter is not disqualified. The assurance that you are not disqualified from ministry, from being a disciple, from impacting other people's lives, from being disqualified to go and tell. I, um, some of you know that I coach track and field on the side in my spare time. <laughs> and I coach sprints and relays because I don't have a long distance bone in my body. And last, this last spring, the relay team at the high school that I coach at made it to state. And if you know anything about track and field in Oregon in high school, especially at a 6A high school, it's very hard, very competitive to even make it to the state track meet, which is at Hayward Field, which is called Track City USA. They have the, um, the Olympic trials are often hosted there. It's just, it's like this track mecca. It's incredible and very intimidating to run at. So our boys relay team was very good. They won districts, they make it to state. And I know, because I back in the day ran there, I know how intimidating it is and how loud it is. And how when you've got, they have nine lanes there. When you have everyone going through their zones, there's just so much adrenaline going through you that it's easy to mishear your cue when someone's yelling stick with the baton and the, all the exchanges happen. So I'm out on the practice track with them right before their, their race. They actually take you under this tunnel. It feels very much like you're in the Olympics. They announce it. And right before they leave, I say to them, remember, don't leave your zone early. It's really easy to leave early because there's so much adrenaline and, and it just, it's happening so fast. And so I'm watching and the first runner takes off. He's doing well. He's on the inside lane. And then all of a sudden I'm waiting for our team. I'm trying like, what, where did they go? and I see that they have dropped the baton at the state track meet. They went all this way, they stayed in the hotel, and three of them didn't even get to run in the race. It was so disappointing. I still feel disappointed telling you about it. It was just a few months ago. And the runner that took off early was so upset. In fact, later on, he couldn't even talk to me that day. He was so upset. And later on, he came and was like, Coach, I am so sorry. I just want to apologize. And I was like, life is like this. I actually think right now it really, really stinks. But this is like life. There are going to be times where you feel you maybe are disqualified at the moment. And Jesus is saying to Peter, you're not out of the race. It feels like you're out of the race, but I'm telling you right now that I want you to pick up this baton and I want you to run the race that is before you. And I believe in you. I believe you can do it. The cool thing is that he tells Peter three times, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. This is Jesus saying, I want you to take care of my bride. I want you to take care of my church. He's leaving no doubt in Peter's mind. I read before in like psychology research that sometimes when we've heard a lie, we need to hear the truth twice as much. And Jesus is telling him three times as much, just in case when I leave and you start going in your own little spiral, Peter, and you doubt, should, am I qualified? Should I be doing this? Jesus told me three times in a row, yes, I am not disqualified. I am still in the race. And I would say the same to me. I would say the same to you, that your past does not disqualify you from sharing Jesus from doing ministry, whether that's formally or informally, but rather it serves as evidence that Jesus is forming and transforming you. So that's the first assurance we see for Peter and for us. The second one is this assurance of Peter's 
worth, assurance of your worth and your story, that your story matters. If you go back to verses 20 through 23, it says this, that Peter turned he turned around. He's with Jesus. You can tell they've kind of left the fireplace breakfast scene and they're, they're probably having a moment. Jesus knows he wants to have this private conversation. And Peter turns and sees that, that John is following them. Part of me is grateful that John is doing that because that's probably how we got this documented, right? But the other part is, is like there's been this friction between John and Peter, as you probably can tell through the whole gospel, this comparison syndrome. And then when Peter saw him, he asked the Lord, what about him. What about John? It's so interesting because when we turn and we look back, we're not looking forward. We're not even looking to the side to where Jesus is walking with us. And it's so easy. I will tell you in my early 20s and 30s, I mean, probably for two decades, y'all, I struggled with comparison. I wouldn't say I'm over it, but I'm definitely like a recovering comparison addict. And I'm getting slowly better the older I get. But I have battled this my whole life. I remember um, I have a good friend named Carrie, and she, to me, can do it all. She has four biological kids. She's done tons of foster care. And out of the foster care uh, out of her doing foster care, she's adopted three foster care children as a sibling set. So now she has seven children. She also, for a long season, did um, taught homeschool to a lot of them. And she does a whole bunch of other things I could list. And one day, I said to her on the phone, Carrie, I truly don't know how you do it all. I, like, I, in my mind, like, she cooks these amazing meals. She does all these things for her community. And you know what she said to me? She said, Olivia, don't think too highly of me. I'm grading math papers on the toilet right now as I'm talking to you. <laughs> and it just made me think, she's real. We all get the same 24 hours, right? She has her own story. She could tell you if she were up here so many things like what Shelly and Scott were saying today of DHS hard court things she's done and all of the, the trials that she's gone through watching children in foster care. And she has her own path, her own story. And what's happening here is that Jesus is reassuring Peter of his own story and that his own story will bring glory to God. He tells him that. And this is this beautiful discipleship model that we will be most effective in the world when we do not look back at others, right? When we don't get distracted, but we simply listen to Jesus' voice saying, obey me, follow me, and you're going to see my, me at work in your life, to get our eyes on God and off of other people. And that's really, really hard. What's interesting is that Peter is not a static character. If you've done anything in literature or in English class in school right now, static characters stay the same. But Peter is a dynamic character, which means he actually has an arc. He has a growth to him. And when Jesus tells him this whole situation about, you know, when, when you were little, People dressed you, and you kind of went where you wanted, or you dressed yourself, excuse me, and you went where you wanted. As you get older, other people are going to dress you and take you where you don't want to go, and you're going to stretch out your arms. He's referring to his death. And so we know from biblical studies and from historical studies, most theologians and historians think that John was the only disciple to live to old age. The rest were martyred according to if you read lots and lots of things. And most historical accounts say that Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't even want to die in the same manner that Jesus did. 
That's how much he wanted to honor his friend, even in his death. And so we know that, that Peter's growth chart is, is just, I mean, he's like the first disciple I want to meet when I go to heaven. It's incredible. And so Jesus is telling him, my glory is going to be revealed in your story. You might not even like your story right now, but I'm going to reveal massive glory if you just trust me and know that your worth matters. The third thing, the third assurance we get is the assurance of the word of God. If you look at verses 24 and 25, it says this. This is John speaking. This is very end, end of it. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. It's so poetic and so beautiful. And then if you go to John 20, which is, this is the purpose. This is, it even says in your Bible, the, like this is kind of the thesis statement, the main point of this whole book. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, again, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so this passage in the very end of John really mirror each other, and they are saying, this is true. We're not making it up. It's actual, this is not a fiction story, right? This actually happened, and we wrote all this down so that you would believe in Jesus and that by believing, you would have life, true, everlasting life in his name. And that just reminds me of the validity of the word of God. The word of God is sharper, it says, than a two-edged sword that can even like divide bone and marrow. It, it like cuts us in two in the best ways. It, it penetrates our hearts. I think I've told some of you that I've been doing the Bible in a year, but on audio. And it's, I can't even tell you how much it has changed the way I hear and interpret and read scripture. It's been just this incredible thing um, for me this year. And, um, and you don't have to start in January. I started in spring. I'm hoping to finish by Easter. That's my goal. Um, but I've come up and been coming across all these stories that I didn't really remember or even knew existed that are like buried in second Kings. And I want to tell you one brief one that reminded me of this assurance of the word of God in second Kings 22. It's easy to remember two, 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 second Kings 22. There's a King and his name is King Josiah. And Josiah is the first King out of many, many, many decades. That is finally a good King. And so we've had all these bad kings that are just about themselves, just about money and power. And we finally get a good king named Josiah. And about 18 years into his reign, they are doing some repairs on the temple. They're kind of going through things. And they find the word of God. They find the law of God, which up, up to that point, obviously, was a lot of Old Testament stuff, right? Like the Torah, things like that. And they have misplaced it. It, the Bible doesn't even say how long, but we know it's been at least 18 years and probably many before that, that this has just been sitting there somewhere buried in the temple gathering dust. And as I'm listening to the story of King Josiah and what happens, all I could think about was my own self, even as a pastor, like this incredible gift we have that people have painstakingly translated, risked their life for in many cases, and it just is sitting there. It got lost. 
And so then as when Josiah finds it, I mean, he actually tears his clothes. He's like weeping. He is realizing we have been missing the word of God. And he ends up just like, they throw parties. They actually reinstate the Sabbath. They just start going back to what has always been, but that they had right at their fingertips the whole time and didn't even know. And this passage where John is saying at the very end, this is true. I saw it with my own eyes. I'm not making it up. This is this gift that we have, the assurance of the word of God that will never be taken away from us. And he got to see it in the flesh, and we get the privilege of having it in beautiful leather-bound books. And however, maybe, you, maybe reading isn't, maybe you're not a visual learner, maybe you're an audio learner like I am. I've been discovering that about myself. There are so many different ways um, now that we can literally press a button on Spotify and get the word of God in our hearts, in our ears. And if you, um, after service, if, or if you can send me an email, if you want to know, I have many I could suggest to you. But the assurance of the word of God, Jesus is leaving with them and John is leaving with us. The last assurance, the fourth assurance we're going to look at today is the assurance of Jesus' love for you. So we're going to end today by looking at this exchange between Peter and Jesus. I call it the do you love me exchange. I kind of laugh when I read this because I've done this to my husband many times. And he's like, I tell you all the time I love you. It sounds almost insecure, right? Do you love me? But I don't think that in this situation, Jesus is insecure. And we're going to look at the original language here. I'm going to put it on the screen that this is written in. So I want you to look at the words love. The first time Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? It's agape, love in the Greek. So this is, you know, our Bibles have been translated to English. The original was Greek. And the Greeks, as I'll show you in a second, have much better nuances for the word love than we do. So the second time Jesus asks him, do you love me? He says agape, the first and second. And Peter responds, I phileo you. I love you with this phileo love. He's not answering him with agape love. So it's an interesting word exchange. And the last time, the third time, Jesus changes it slightly and says, do you phileo me? Do you love me with this phileo love? And Peter is deeply grieved because it's the third time. He's remembering the charcoal fire. He's remembering the three times. He's so deeply grieved of denying Jesus. And he says, I phileo you. So it's very interesting. These first two times is agape for Jesus. And then he changes it slightly to phileo. If you look at um, kind of a chart of the different types of love in Greek, which C.S. Lewis has written an incredible book on called The Four Loves. Um, there are many, you, could, you can Google the definitions of Greek love um, and the way they define it. But in his book, The Four Loves, um, he just does an incredible job of defining some of these Greek words for love, which, which I appreciate because we can say, I love popcorn, I love carbs, I love my mom, and it's all the same in English. But in Greek, they really differentiate. And so there's this phileo love that you see between like Jonathan and David in scripture, which is this love of friendship, the pursuit of virtue, like we're after the same thing, we're united. This is true friendship. This isn't usually like you're born into a family kind of love, it's friendship love, and it's a very high form of love. And then you have storge love, family love. Um, C.S. Lewis describes this as the bed of rice you put your pod tie on. <laughs> I love that. It's this love of family. It's like you need a foundation. 
And even if that's not your biological family, you need this foundation. You need a home, right? And then we have eros, the love of desire, romantic love, which we, we obviously in our culture high, highlight and elevate to such a, a large degree. And eros can either move us to give ourselves, right, in a healthy way, or it can move us to take for ourselves in an unhealthy way and be distorted and misused. And it's fickle. You know, you think about like Romeo and Juliet, which is very much Eros. Does anyone remember at the very beginning of Romeo and Juliet, Romeo actually loves somebody else. I think her name is Rosalind, Rosalind, something like that. And, and then all of a sudden he sees Juliet and he's like, never mind, I forgot her. And it's, it's so fickle. And it's beautiful, right? When it's in its like healthy God form, but it's not the highest, highest love. And then we have supernatural agape love, the kind of love that Christ taught and showed. And what's really neat is if you look in Ephesians, um, when, in Paul's writing where you see like husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church, that's agape love. It act, if you go to the, the Greek of that, like the kind of love where you would lay down your life for somebody. And it's the same word for love we see in John 3.16 that God so loved the world. He gave his only son. That's agape love. And so it's very interesting when we see, you know, this exchange, the do you love me exchange? Do you agape me? And Peter says, I phileo you. Do you agape me? Peter says, I phileo you. And the last time, do you phileo me? And Peter says, I phileo you. What's happening there? There are so many, you could literally just geek out and read lots and lots of commentaries on this. But when I just read this straight down and I look at it, I think that Jesus is assuring Peter he's going to come to his level. He's going to meet him right where he's at, which is this beautiful, gracious hosting thing that Jesus does through all of his ministry, very explicitly. And so I think of that because Peter, Peter has obviously coming into this situation very tender, right? And we know that he is the disciple who's been boasting um, in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He says very, very explicitly, I will do anything. He even tells him, I'm going to lay down my life for you. And he says, I would never leave you. All these other disciples, they might betray you, but never me. So he's already boasted about this. And now he's coming into this conversation very humbled and I don't know about you, but I don't want to ever like overpromise and underdeliver. And I think Peter's maybe in a, possibly in a situation like that where he's saying, I don't even know right now if I can honestly say, I agape love you, Lord. What if I can't? What if it's not in me? And what if there's like too much damage? What if my trust just isn't high enough? Or what if he's scared? And so Jesus, just like I think about when you talk to kids, like you get down to their level and he says, do you phileo me? And that's when Peter says, yes, Lord, I, I phileo you. You know that I do. And if you read the book of Acts, which has lots of Peter, he's one of the main characters in it, tons of wild, crazy stuff is going to happen in the early church after Jesus goes to heaven. And Peter's going to need to remember and be reassured in Jesus's love for him, because it is going to cost him his life. He's going to be thrown in prison. He's going um, to have so much attack on him, lies about him, hard things. And she, I hope, I'm, I imagine this moment that he's remembering that Jesus went to his level, because eventually Peter will agape 
the Lord. But in this moment, he's telling him, this is what I have. And so I think of all of us. I think of so many friends I have. I think of different seasons I've been in where I'm like, how do I pray to you, Lord? How do I talk to you right now when my faith feels so tender and so weak? And I think of the book of Lamentations, which is a lament, right? And at the very end, they are still talking to God. In fact, I think that's one of the definitions of hope is when you're still talking to God, even if it's very small, even if it's throwing up this prayer that, you, that all you have, you're still hoping in the Lord and you're still trying to phileo love, still have this, this brotherly, sisterly love, like the name of Philadelphia is named after that, this brotherly, sisterly, I, I want to be after the same thing. So Jesus is a savior, a friend that will come to you. He comes to your level right where you're at to remind you and assure you that the Lord is constant, knowable, real, for you, and with you. And if we kind of just take this book of John right now in this very sweet moment where Jesus is saying, okay, this is, this is what you can do right now. I'm going to meet you right there. And you go halfway back to the book of John, we see Lazarus, his, one of his dearest friends, and Lazarus is dead. Jesus gets the memo, and he knows that that means he has to go to Jerusalem, which means certain death for him. Because at that point, the tensions are high, the controversy is high. He said that he's the Messiah. The religious leaders are mad. And yet, he loves Lazarus. And so he knows that if he goes to his level and meets Lazarus where he's at, it's going to cost him his life. And he does it anyways. Because Jesus will always come to us, to where we're at. And then if you rewind and you go all the way back to the beginning of John, this is what we read. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life thing that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. Jesus comes to our level too. And as we are going to celebrate starting next Sunday, he comes to us and came to us as a baby, a savior, a king, as a little vulnerable baby. The word made flesh dwelling among us, coming to us just as Jesus did for Peter, just as he did for Lazarus, he does with us. And the message version says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And that is the most incredible reassurance that we have. I'd love to invite the worship team back up as we close. And I'd just like to close this in prayer today. And as I pray, I'm going to pray these four assurances over myself and over you as well. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I thank you for this beautiful scene of hospitality where we get to see you as a host, as a generous friend, a gracious friend that comes to us, makes us breakfast 
and just has all the time in the world for us, Lord. And, and I thank you that you have not um, disqualified those who love you, that nothing um, can take us out of the race, Lord, unless we take ourselves out, that you say, I want you to keep going, that you have a story to tell, that your story is not someone else's story, and that each individual in here, their story, you are sovereign over it, Lord. Despite what the world may throw at them, that their story has worth and ultimately it will reveal your glory, Lord. I believe that. I thank you for the assurance of God's word, the assurance of this gospel even, that the word of God has the power to do what nothing else in this world can do, Lord that it can comfort and it can convict all at the same time and that you, em you embody the word of God, Jesus. And I thank you, Lord, for the assurance, most of all, of your love for us. I pray that you would reassure my friends today, those that are like Peter, that need to hear the truth at least twice as loud as they've been hearing a lie, that you would gently just sit with them, walk with them, and reassure them of your deep love, that you will meet them right where they are today. Even if that's a little flame, a little spark of faith, that you will grow that just like you did in Peter. You will breathe life into them, Jesus. We thank you so much that you are a God, a savior that comes to be with us, to dwell in our neighborhood, to take up residence inside of us. We love you. We could not do life without you. We're so grateful in Jesus' name. Amen.